0: This is Mighty Oaks, a programme about age. I'm Owen Hamlin, and this week episode 9, titled Not Looking for Anything Special, in which we explore negative attitudes toward age, how they infect many parts of our lives, and whether they're true or necessary. Conor Breen is policy officer for Cardi, the Centre for Ageing Research and Development in Ireland.
1: As part of the European Year for Active Ageing and Intergenerational Solidarity, Cardi published an article on intergenerational solidarity um, which challenged some of these myths that have built up around ageing. The first one that we addressed was this whole idea that, oh well, in a recession, older people are clinging on to their jobs for longer, they're working past the state retirement age, so that means that there will be fewer jobs for younger people um, who are are in desperate need of employment. Um, In 2012, the EU conducted a survey, uh, European-wide, and it found that 56% of Europeans agreed with that attitude, that um, as older people stay in their jobs for longer and work longer, there will be fewer jobs around for younger people. Um, I suppose we'd point to the example of Denmark which has um, the employment rate among the over 55 age group is uh, significantly higher than the average, it's 10% above the average but at the same time youth unemployment is much lower than the average. So it it shows that um, Older people can stay in, in their jobs for longer, and it won't affect youth unemployment as long as kind of we, we have the right policies in place to deal with it. Also, as long as employers are supportive of older workers, it's important to challenge that myth. It can lead to kind of a bit of begrudgery against older people who are working hard in their jobs after the age of 65, after the age of 70. Uh, contributing significantly to their companies, um, often as managing directors, as senior partners of companies contributing long into their 70s. So that's a myth that it's important to to challenge, I think. It it is another myth that once you reach a particular age, you suddenly need a lot of support from your family, that you can be a burden on your family. Uh, The Irish longitudinal study on ageing shows that uh, quite the opposite is true. It showed that over one-third of older adults are providing practical household help, you know, things like shopping or household chores to their adult children. Um, And over half of uh, people um, in older age groups are providing care to grandchildren. Another important thing to come out of the uh, TILDA study was that nearly one quarter of older people had given financial or material gifts worth 5,000 euros or more to their children in the last 10 years.
0: It was a TILDA report into the number of women aged between 50 and 69 providing care to older parents and dependent children that led to recent media reports of the so-called sandwich generation.
1: So it shows that older people are um, both providing support in terms of care and household help and financial support to their families. Contrary to the myth that older people are a burden on their families, you know, families have to visit them, families have to provide care for them families have to go out and find long-term residential or nursing home care for them, when oftentimes it's quite the opposite, that they're getting a lot of assistance from their older family members.
2: But it's like a lot of other myths out there. It's like believing, you know, women aren't capable of doing certain things, or um, it's the same kind of thing except one is sexism, the other is ageism, you know, but they're the same kind of thing at the end of the day. Jackie Jones, I do a health column for the Irish Times, my background is 38 years with the, you know, the old health boards and the HSE. So I have a lot of experience in the whole health area.
0: Dr. Jones also writes about ageism, which is why I gave her a call.
2: I think it's absolutely rife and it, it, people have got kind of got so used to it that they don't even really notice when it's happening. For example, and one of my articles I wrote about the um line where doing, you know, a sale about their their fares to go to England and places like that, and they had this on about bring all the baggage that you want, all the luggage that you want, including grandma. I mean, that is like one, just one example of the kind of thing that that goes on. In other words that grandma is so unproductive that she's really just, you know, like a piece of luggage that you just pack her into the back of the car and you know, take her to you know, do the babysitting while you're enjoying yourself or something like that. And you see it everywhere. Like you go into shops and they call you love and dear. Now I'm 64, so I've noticed it in the last three or four years. It didn't happen to me before. And now it's there all the time. You know, people assume you're, you're, you know, you don't know anything about anything. So yeah, it's right there. And as I say, people don't even really notice it a lot of the time because they're so used to thinking of older people um, in that way that you're just a little bit you know, a bit decrepit, that you need help, that you're unproductive. The only people that really count in in most Western societies are people aged between, I suppose, 20... you know, 20 and 60. And they're the real people. People below that are, are kind of children and teenagers and are treated as such and people over that. And you actually hear people saying that, oh, those older people, they're just like children, aren't they? But they're not like children. Even when they're senile, they're not like children are people with 78 years experience of the world.
1: People have the perception of older people that uh, all they can do is shuffle along on a path somewhere. Um, it's definitely not true. The people I suppose that most need physical activity are the ones that feel themselves less capable of it. The, the thing that can be done to combat it is, uh, one thing would be public health campaigns. I know there's a the website Get Ireland Active has a special section for older people that tries to kind of combat this idea that they're not capable of
2: it. There's been a, quite a bit of research done on um, the whole ageing process and um, like really in terms of being an expense on the health system. Like that doesn't really happen until people are well into their 80s or, or, or 90s, you know? And, and maybe not even then in some people. And it's really all about how you've lived your life rather than just because you're old you you suddenly get decrepit and your health just declines once you hit 65.
1: We see older people as carers, as volunteers, as employers, employees, as supporters of their family making a hugely positive contribution to society Um, so this idea that you fall off a cliff once you hit the age of 65 uh, needs to be stamped out um, because that's just it's judging people by a particular age. They reach for no reason without looking at them and their experiences.
2: And of course, if somebody is, is really looking after themselves, doing their exercise, walking, doing lots of walking out and about and all of that, then those people are going to be healthy right into old age unless they get something like cancer or something like that. It would be learnt, you know, from generation to generation, it would be learnt through what they see other people doing, how older people are treated, and they would learn it that way. And that's certainly true for the sexism bit, that that would come from patriarchal sort of views and patriarchal kind of societies that were set up in in that particular way. I mean, I think ageism is a bit different from the point of view that it's really about, you know, a younger person's fear about getting older, and that's that's where it kind of starts. It's about kind of our feared future selves, you know, thoughts about our own anxiety and our own mortality. So ageism really allows younger people to see anyone over 50 as different, as this reduces their own fears of ageing and death. So well, they, they can say to themselves, well, I'm not that age yet, so I don't, I'm don't, i okay, you know, or I'm not 60 yet, or I'm not 70 yet, so I'm okay. And you'll see this going through, and really it's about fear of death, I suppose, more than anything else. But at the end of it, that's what it's about. People's fear of of death, and that's my belief anyway. (laughs) I think they internalise it, but it's not only that. I mean, I think older people can be ageist towards themselves, in the same way that women can be sexist towards themselves and can end up being their own worst enemy by putting, you know, because they've bought into society's view of what they're capable of. Um, And that went on a long time in schools with, you know, young girls doing science and maths and of course that's changed around now. But, you know, that that kind of thing, and older people buy into this notion that, you know, when I'm old and they actually begin to act old. They think, well, I'm not really able to travel on my own and I need to have somebody with me and I'm not really... That kicks in because they bought into all the messages, which is nearly worse than other people being ageist towards you, people being ageist towards themselves that's probably even more insidious than getting it from other people. It kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy then, you know, where, where they're inter- in- internalizing all these negative messages and they believe in and collude with the negative stereotypes. Now, of course, it is one of the most socially condoned forms of, of, of prejudice as well. I mean, it's that people think it's quite normal and okay to call old people dear and love, you know? And I, would, I challenge people about that when it's said to me if I go into a bar and I'm ordering drink or coffee and say, there you are, love. I say it to them. I say, do you say that to everybody or just to people my age? And they kind of taken aback. And of course, they don't call everybody love. And it's extremely annoying. Another time I was in I was in a shop with my daughter, who's in her late 30s, and I was looking for a memory stick. And I said, look, I was explaining, I wanted a memory stick big enough to my phd on which was an awful lot of words like a hundred thousand words or something like that so i wanted a nice big one that i could save it and the server turned to my daughter who was beside me and said does she want a four or an eight gigabyte?" it didn't address me and i'm the one who wanted the memory stick you know so this kind of thing goes on all the time and people actually think they're being nice to you and i'm treating you know i'm treating the older person you know with consideration and but they're really not able to manage, so I'll help them up steps and I'll do this and I'll do that. It's extremely annoying. There will be some simple things, you know, for example, I renewed my driving license there uh, recently, and they would only give me one until I'm 70. So that's just a simple example. I mean, you know, these things need to be looked at so that, and it's the only way that they have managed to get some equality for women in the country. It hasn't been through role models. It hasn't been through any of that it's been they've just changed the legislation. So there's ways you can do it. You can bring in you can you can you can actually say public policy is X. Now I can't think of anything offhand that you know, that that I, I would I would immediately do. But that's the way you're going to change things. That's the way you're going to change attitudes um and all of that. Like that's my belief anyway. So you might have, say, a very, very successful man of seventy who's still an entrepreneur and making whatever millions every year and he's he, he, he's a role model and, and whatever, but somehow the problem with ageism is that, that the kind of the stereotypical views don't apply to those kind of people and having role models isn't enough. You have to have it you have to to do something about ageism really, you have to have it kind of an almost, uh, you know, public policies about it or some kind of way that you can get rid of it other than through uh, other than through role models. Because I think the role models just aren't enough for something like this because it's so insidious, it's so much out there. And I suppose it's just really maybe having media people more aware of it. I mean, you, you, you will know yourself, you're in the media. Now, whenever you see, and I've noticed this, and this is a real example of, of it, whenever you see, uh, you see anything in the newspapers or even on, on television where they're showing pictures, there's some story about older people, be it that they're in nursing homes or be it that they're whatever the story is. And the only thing you'll ever see in the picture is either their slippers, they're shuffling along in their slippers, or you'll see their hands, the two hands, you know, crossed over, the wrinkled hands. That's all you'll see. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but I certainly would notice that. And it's nearly always that way. They just show the older person shuffling along and the two feet and in the slippers and the walker very often as well, you know. And that might be true in some cases, but that's the image. That's the image that, that you're, you know, you're left with. For older people, it always means that, you know, the gnarled the hands and the, the slippers. Usually, if they're talking about older people, you do not see 80-year-old women who are in really, really good health, you know, climbing, hill-walking. But look for it now next time you're reading some article about older people, and I guarantee you it'll be the slippers and the two hands. Will be all you'll see.
0: Since Dr. Jones brings it up, in producing Mighty Oaks, I'm consciously trying to present a different portrayal of the lives of older people. Whatever the radio equivalent of the slippers and hands is, I hope this series is successfully steering clear of it and giving food for thought in the process
1: in december 2011 cardi published a study on uh insurance the insurance industry in general and whether discriminating against older people is a risk indemnity as the insurance industry would claim or whether it's just simple age discrimination Um, Insurance can be a very costly thing for older people, so it's one area where ageism and age discrimination may be creeping into the lives of older people. Say, for example, in the area of travel insurance, once you hit the age of 70, your travel insurance premiums tend to increase dramatically, often triple, when there's no actual reason for that. I mean, what has happened between the age of 69 and 70 that you suddenly need a much higher insurance premium? So uh, older people should be judged on their own individual case, rather than this whole idea again, that we're hitting an arbitrary age, so insurance should go up. Um, In in, Say, getting car insurance can be quite difficult for older people, even though they can be very competent drivers who have driven for many, many decades. So it's important that uh, older people are judged on their own individual experiences and merits in these areas, rather than Again, you're hitting one particular age, so you suddenly can be charged a lot more in um, travel insurance or motor insurance.
2: I, I, mean, I think it's just crap. <laughs> I think it's just 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 a crap idea. I mean, you have to look at insurance, and you've got to take each individual with your 20 questions, you know. And you know what's your eyesight like? When was the last time you had a crash? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I don't think there's any evidence that older people are are a worse risk. Is there? I don't to aware of it. I don't think there is.
1: To a certain extent among younger male drivers you can see the need for a higher insurance premium because a majority of traffic accidents come from that age group That um, that's what research shows. Among older age groups it's not really supported by the same level of research that older people you know contrary to this idea that they're bad drivers, that they drive really slowly, they need to get off the road, research doesn't really support that. Insurance should be based on actual research into what that age group are doing rather than, you know, just an idea that you've hit a certain age, so this is what we will charge
2: you. I mean, you know, older people are not stupid. If they feel the right side is going and they're they're not they're not going to be driving, you know? They're not stupid, like. They're going to be taking their own precautions, you know?
0: But you're not aware of any attempt by the industry to try and justify it or, you know, with any back it up with any any numbers if you
1: like i'm not really aware of uh, any particular research from the insurance side point of view um, with regard to you know older people's health when they're traveling on holidays or older people
0: as drivers the irish insurance federation didn't respond to a request for an interview
2: and you don't really want a society that's specially for older people. You see, the societies and and the built environment and all of that, particularly the built environment, that is suitable for older people who may have some mobility problems or whatever, is exactly the same kind of built environment you want for young parents with children in in buggies. All of that kind of thing. So you're not looking for anything special. You're just looking at, instead of dividing people into children, you know, the real people, the adults in the middle and then older people, the mindset has to be that these are all They're all human beings, and you need a particular kind of, say, built environment that suits people of all mobilities. And when it comes to legislation around driving licenses, which I mentioned earlier on, or passports, or whatever, you have a rule that is the same for everyone. You don't divide people into those and say, well, because they're over 65, they need something different. They don't.
1: The 2011 census showed that um, there are now 535,000 people over the age of 65 in Ireland. But by 2041, which is um, less than 30 years away, they're going to be nearly one and a half million. If you think about it, by 2041, one in every four people walking down Grafton Street is going to be over the age of 65. It has huge implications for the way we uh, approach policy for society, the way we approach health policy, the way we approach care policy, the way we approach kind of pensions. Um, all different aspects of where older people are affected. In the future, a huge number more people are going to be affected by those issues. So that is one aspect that older people in the future will be part of one of the um, most important age groups. Ireland is a very young society at the moment by European standards, particularly compared to Italy or Germany, Um, but our population is ageing at the same time. And this is, it's a great breakthrough in terms of medical science, in terms of uh, advances in health, in public health, but at the same time politicians have to be aware that it's coming. Uh, they have to be adequately prepared and that's where maybe ageing research comes into things that we have the data, we can look at what's going to happen, we can look at better preparing society for this demographic ageing which is will have a huge impact on all aspects of society.
3: I got interested in, in my current research uh, several years ago when I when it became clear to me that much of the current debate on, on population ageing uh, was being based on, on sort of aesthetic age. So, um, uh, while well, at the same time, elderly health was improving, has been improving at quite a fast rate. My name is Sam Jeroen Spijker, I'm a uh, senior research fellow at the uh, University of Edinburgh. I'm a demographer whose research interests include population health and ageing, but I've also done research in family sociology, including, for instance, looking at trends in divorce, cohabitation, and uh, repartnering. But my main specialty now is pretty much into in, in ageing and in health
0: maybe you could define the um, the old age dependency ratio.
3: Yeah, sure. The old age, basically it's a, a standard indicator of, of population ageing, and whereby it takes the number of people who have reached uh, the state pension age, or age 65 usually, and, and divides it by the, the number of the working age, so that's the 16 to 64 year olds, uh, in order to estimate the proportion of older people relative to those who are supposed to be paying for them. The, the problem with that is that uh, it gives us little sense of the impact of population aging on the real balance of dependency. So um, researchers from Vienna um, suggested several years ago to define elderly by taking the population who has, has less than 15 years of remaining remaining life expectancy rather than a static age, uh, such as the cutoff point of 65. And And because, as I said before, because health has been improving over the last decades. So they say, well, why don't we just consider this this, uh, improving health? So one argument is that in the planning of public expenditure on social research, particularly related to health, the use of a static age makes little sense as uh, population health at any given age uh, improves over time. Old age and dependency are not really as correlated as, uh, as we are often led to believe, especially in times of rising life expectancy among the elderly.
0: Would it be fair then to, to say that the meaning of of being a certain age changes over time whereas the meaning of having a certain amount of time left to live is constant, is that essentially it?
3: Exactly, it's a bit behind it, so if you, um, of course you, you can debate this, but uh, the idea is that if you uh, have say 15 years of life left, um, then you've aged the same amount even if you're, whether you're 60 or 68. So before, say, uh, in the UK in, in the mid 70s, um, a 60 a year old male could expect to live another 15 years. And now in 2000, what was it, 2011, I think the data that I looked at, um, that's gone up to 68. So you've got your chronological age, how many years you have have lived, and then you've got your sort of what's called the prospective age, or at least you know, the years you've got left. And so you could argue that if you've got, statistically speaking, uh, looking at the whole population, you've got 15 years of life left, well, that's uh, how much you've, you've you've aged. And whether you're 60 or 68, that's not the issue anymore. What you have in Ireland is that you still have a relatively young young population comparing it to uh, to other European countries and so um, in fact you still have about 22 percent aged 0 to 15 and in other countries it's maybe 14 or 15 and at the same time you have about a 12 uh, percent aged 65 plus while in other countries it might be uh, about 16 or 17 as well so you've got uh, and a quite large working age population so in that in that sense the traditional old age dependency ratio without adjusting for increasing life expectancy in the workforce, then it's still relatively low and it sort of starts to increase Increase now. And so now taking our so-called real elderly dependency ratio, what you actually see is that Ireland loses its advantage with regard to the other countries and from between the 1960s and in the 19. 19- 80s simply because of relatively low labor force participation among women and of course that's drastically changed now in, in ireland so of course you living in ireland you'll you're able to see that around you um, as well but and so what's happened is that because of that the, the elderly burden has actually dropped and now it's a lot lower than in uh, any other european country and in fact it's even lower than the u.s which has traditionally got a, a younger quite a young population as well so in that sense it's not looking too bad for uh, for ireland uh, in my opinion i don't really see the future so bleak for this uh within this whole aging debate i'm <laughs> okay. uh, not sh- not sure what to add on to that but <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than it seems it's just not dividing the number of elderly by the number of workers and that and then you have your uh, your elderly uh, dependency ratio and you have to base your your policies on that i think that's really what what our um, message is policy makers should be aware of this and, and they should then make the decisions on the basis of more accurate or more objective population trends. This the static age categorization uh, they should really be careful with. And the same goes, for instance, in terms of pensions, the 65. It's not that everybody stops working at that age. It may be the statutory uh, pension age, but many people retire before that. So you've got to have You've got to know, uh, you know, look at, lab- at age-specific labor force participation rates and do your calculations on the basis of of that. There's still some fine-tuning that needs to be done. Uh, what is clear, however, is that the classic old age dependency ratio proves to be completely wrong, to provide a completely wrong picture of really how age population is. Of course, our measure isn't perfect either, but it's just, I think, a step forward. Great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Thanks, right, thanks for
3: taking interest in, uh, in my work. It uh, was a pleasure. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Dr. Spiker's research shows that having more older people in the population isn't in itself the problem it's often made out to be, but perhaps more significantly, it offers a new way of thinking about how we age, not based on the years we've lived, but on the years we've left to live. It seems that not only is age just a number, it's not even the right number. that's it for this week mighty oaks was produced and edited by me this week's episode featured music by poddington bear our theme tune is canteen rag by jackson f smith to listen back to previous episodes of mighty oaks just go to soundcloud.com slash mighty oaks to subscribe to mighty oaks as a podcast go to feeds.feedburner.com slash mighty oaks podcast or search for Mighty Oaks in iTunes. If you've any thoughts about the show, email us at mightyoaksradio at gmail.com. I'm Owen Handlon. Thanks very much for listening.